This is episode number 390 with Uncle Nagpal of the Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human. Who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating, fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. 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 The Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Seth, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Robert Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. Hey guys, welcome back to the first episode of the year. Hope you had an amazing break, holiday, you and your family and friends are well. Let's make 2022 the best year yet. Today's guest is one of my good friends and someone who's seen incredible success building a tech company, which he sold for well over $200 million. And today he's turned his eyes to investing. So he started his own venture capital fund and he's really gonna share with you what it takes to start your own fund, how to put your best foot forward when you wanna seek investors. And uh, he's one of the smartest guys, connected guys I know. So please welcome my good friend, Uncle Nagpal. So uh, the first question we ask everyone that comes on is, how did you get your job, aka how did you find yourself doing the work you're doing today? It's been, it's been a journey, man. So the first time I was here, the job I was doing was being the founder of Teachable, which I think we talked about earlier, which was born out of this you know, desire. Like I was creator myself and um, unhappy with all the platforms. So I built Teachable. But today, the job I'm doing is very different. So let me answer that. Today, spending more of my time investing in companies. Um, and that's something you know, I was very fortunate to do when I was running Teachable. A couple of my investors... Um, basically give me their money. They're like, hey, you're a founder. As a founder, you're going to see cool opportunities, cool companies, other smart people take our money and invest it on our behalf. Um, and yeah, started doing that and realized I actually really enjoyed that. Mm, awesome. Yeah. So look, um, you're starting a new fund. Um, I want to talk about that, but I also want to selfishly kind of pick your brain around like for founders that actually want to start a fund. Because like, you know, I was talking to you offline, like I see a world in the next couple of years where we can start a, you know, a founder, founder, you know, founder capital um, or something like that. And because we get deal flow too, we get like incredible yep. people that, that are doing insane things. And, you know, we see tools or speaking to tools, uh, founders of tools, which I think are going to be massive. So I guess, you know, uh, talk to us kind of 
how did you start the first fund, ASAP Capital? Talk to us about that. How that all come about? Yeah, absolutely. So I first started again. The first fund I had was not even sort of my fund. It was just money given by my investors to start investing. Um, and it was really powerful because now when I had a conversation, a good example is like when you're a startup, you always have tools your team likes to use. And a lot of times those tools might not be the like incumbent. It might not be, you know, Atlassian's. It might be some new startup. Um, so I was able to go into companies and, you know, offer them, I think it was $50,000 checks, um, which was super powerful, you know, to almost create a good relationship, but it, you just f- could keep up with so much more of the world um, doing that. In terms of operationally, how the whole thing worked for us was very simple. I mean, uh, we've been big believers in AngelList as a platform, which you know made it super, super easy for anyone to sort of create a fund, raise money from other investors, and then they handle all the back office tax, accounting, all of that stuff. And for me, that was very important because the last thing I wanted to get into is like dealing with international tax law when I'm investing in a different country or you know, you know, just coordinating wire transfers and paperwork and all of that. So AngelList powered the platform and beyond that, it was just a case of like, how do I find the most amazing founders I can and, and you know, establish a relationship with them. I'm curious as well, kind of like we're seeing this trend, which is a rise in founders turned investors. Um, now, you know, you're not active in Teachable anymore. You sold it last year for I think 150, I think it's $150 million, great outcome. Um, and now you're, you're a founder turned to investor. Uh, what, what, what's your big why here? Yeah, it's 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 accidental for one. When I first started investing, I thought it would be this like side thing. I frankly thought it wasn't going to be that fun. I almost had an identity crisis where I'm like, like I'm a I'm a founder. Being an investor sounds kind of lame. Like you know, I create things. I don't I create value. I don't extract value. Uh, but the more I started doing it, a few things started happening. One, I realized you get to keep up with a variety of things because I'm sure you know this when you're building your company as I was, I was so laser focused on one thing. And that's great to do. I did that for seven years, but now it's really cool. I get to keep up with so much different stuff. I get to like, you know, do a call in the morning with a company building like, you know, fast grocery delivery in Chile, all of a sudden move over to a company building for gaming creators in India um, to someone building, you know, enterprise software over here and doing all that before having lunch. Like, that's really cool. You keep up with, it's almost like you get to like, have relationships with the smartest people in the world um, and have a front row seat as they build the future. And that's really cool. Um, and the other thing that I'll say as someone that's both build a business and investing in a business, it's a whole lot easier. Like, you know, I'm not doing it because it's easier, but um, any investor, anyone, anyone that's been a founder and an investor will confirm that. But that in turn is why I think you're also seeing founders prefer raising money from other founders because you just sort of have that mutual respect of like, look, they've done that and we work at the same speed, the same level. And, you know, you have that shared chemistry already. Mm. I suppose as well, there's probably not as much pressure for a return too, right? Depends on how you structure it, right? Like, so what I what I did, for instance, is I put a good amount of my capital, but I also raised money for my first fund from 50 other people and for my second fund from 200 other people. Some of these people are like my younger brother, like, you know, my my parents and people where... I wouldn't say there's not a pressure for return. It's almost like raising their money makes me like work harder. Um, but of, of course, when you're raising a fund, which is inherently like, you know, investing early stage technology to risky asset class, you sort of tell everyone like, hey, like, I think this will do well, but expect to lose everything. Like this is a, you know, high risk, high reward sort of game. Um, so there's still a little bit of pressure, but I think that pressure arguably makes me a better investor. It makes me work harder than if I was just kind of 
investing my money is because I'd be like, whatever, you know, like this way I'm also have the psychology of like working for people I like. Mm, yeah, I love it. So I once heard um, Tim Ferriss say that like, you know, he doesn't want to build companies anymore. He'd rather invest in them and he still gets that kind of fun part of that feeling of being part of the journey, but not having to yep. do the work. Yeah. Is that a good kind I, of... So, so the way, the way I think about it is right. Like you, and I'm just, I'm making up these numbers, but you roughly get, let's say like 70% the dopamine and the high and like the, the like good feeling and like 10% of the work. So it's a good, like sort of trade-off there where it's sort of, it's kind of cheating the system. Like I'll have a company where I've given them money and yes, I help them. I talk to the founders and we have a good relationship. They're the ones doing all the work yet when they do well, I mean, you do definitely experience some of that, you know, some of that high as well. Um, and that's, and that's, that's, again, that's, that's really both like cool, but also like motivating to, you know, experience that and then, you know, help other, help more teams sort of reach that. Mm. And I'm curious, kind of like when it comes to, to starting a fund, what kind of returns if you like to you as the founder, if you, you wanted to go and start with, yep. what kind of returns would you kind of aim for when and like, how, how does that side of things work? Yeah, absolutely. And again, this is such an interesting time because in a lot of ways, historical precedents may not be applicable anymore because the world is changing so fast. But realistically, the way people judge venture fund performances is by the idea of comparing it to other funds of the same vintage. Now, vintage refers to the year it was formed because theoretically, like all funds formed in a certain year are very heavily correlated. Like, let's imagine you're your fund was formed right before the dot-com boom and you invested in the dot-com boom, there's a dot-com crash. That entire cohort of funds didn't perform super well. Um, so realistically, what you aim for when you're, when you're setting up a fund is based on your goals, like I, I know I want to be a top decile you know, fund, but that is if all the funds started last year, I would want to be you know, 19th percentile or higher. What that actually maps to for this cohort, we don't know. Historically, roughly returning over 3x would put you in that top decile. But I suspect we've had such a strong bull market that when it's all said and done, it's going to be substantially more for the for funds started recently. But again, you know, this changed so much for 10 years, you probably won't know what great looks like. So all you really are evaluated on is, are you either top quartile or top decile? Are you better than 75 or 90% of other funds? And it's really interesting to look through data, but typically 3X is sort of a good baseline to aim for. But like anything 5x and over gets into almost legendary territory where it's like pretty baller. And that's over a what time period? So that's the other thing. Typically, it's over a 10-year time period, but it's not like your capital is only returned at one point after 10 years. Typically, what starts happening is as companies start exiting, which could happen, you know, you're a three, four, five onwards, you keep getting more, you keep getting paid out on a different schedule. So the other number you're basically looking at as a fund manager outside of the multiple is the IRR. Like what is, you know, what sort of IRR are you able to deliver to people? So when you theoretically exit a company, let's say for a 5X multiple in five years, that's a much higher IRR than a 5X multiple in 10 years, right? So those are sort of the numbers you're always tracking. Now, the challenge with venture funds is you don't really see hard data until things start exiting. And by nature of investing early stage startups, it takes a while. So what you do in the interim is, and this is both a good and bad thing is you calculate your IRR based on 
what happens after your investment when other investors come in and pay more for the shares. So as a rough example, like let's say I would invest at a company at a $10 million valuation. Um, and a year later, Andreessen Horowitz comes in and invests at a $50 million valuation. Now, all of a sudden I have, you know, 5X that money and that factors into my temporary IRR calculations. So what happens when you're going out and raising your second fund typically is because you haven't fully seen how the first fund has matured, you're raising it based on sort of these paper markups, uh, but that's sort of where the industry is right now. Yeah, I see. And talk to us kind of about like, so setting it up, you would just use something like AngelList, like that's- Yep, Carta is an alternative as well, but that's also the difference between why I decided to start a fund versus- um, being an angel investor is the technology, legal, admin operations has become commoditized. Like historically, that could cost you know hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars. The fact that I could now use a platform that just does all of that for me makes it worth doing because I don't want to hire a fund administrator. I don't want to deal with legal. I don't want to deal with audits. I don't want to deal with tax. I like that just doesn't make it worth it for me. But now you have these off-the-shelf solutions like Angelus and Carta that make it turnkey. You just throw it up there. Um, they handle all the compliance security stuff. And you can now go from sort of an individual investor to a fund manager. Mm, love it. And I'm curious as well, like when it comes to returns, like you hear stories of like, you know, I was watching a, a, an inter interesting uh, video on YouTube with like Gary Tan, and he talks about kind of his you know, this Coinbase yeah, return, which yeah, is yeah, insane, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. was that from his fund or was that from him as an angel investor? And I, why, I believe yeah. that was from his fund, Initialized Capital. It was from their first fund. And I think, I can't remember the numbers. Was it like $300,000 to like $2 billion or something? Yeah, 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 correct. <laughs> something like that, yeah. So the IRR of that is, you know, hundreds of percent a year. And what happens there is, and that's a good sort of pivot into what you realize in the venture industry, which is counterintuitive, is most companies you invest in don't matter. It's what you're really trying to do is you're trying to you're trying to in, increase the probability of landing one or two really big companies. Like even a company three xing, five xing, is not really that significant. You want to just take as many shots on goal to try and you know a hundred to ten thousand x, because when you win, you win so big that the losses don't really matter. But that's very counterintuitive to a founder. And as a founder, that's sort of a hard lesson to learn because when you're pitching investors, they're not looking to see if it's a good business. They're not looking to see if you can, you know, five or 10X your value. They're looking to see, could this be a $10 billion company? Could this be a $100 billion company? Like, and that's really it. And for them, it's maximizing shots on goal to hit that kind of a, an outcome. Yeah, got you. So, so like for you, man, like, are you looking, like surely you're looking for the next kind of like Coinbase where you yep. kind of like, Yep. 20, 30 X the fund return. Yeah. But, yep. but, but for you, like even a three, five X over a 10 year period, still a massive win for your investors. For the overall fund. Yes. For an individual company, like, like the way I would imagine is let's say I return five X as, as a fund. I typically I've done the math. I would probably have to return at least a hundred X on one company, if not more, you know? Um, so five X for the fund is totally great, but three to five X for an investment. Look, that's great. And I'm happy for the founders, but that's not the business we're in as a fund. And if I think about my worst investments that I've made and worse, just in terms of what I would not do again, were businesses that ultimately turned out to be great businesses as an operator, as a founder, I look at them, they're like probably profitable, probably growing pretty nicely, but they didn't have a shot at that like moonshot sort of outcome. 
Um, and it's unfortunate, but like venture is not the right toolkit for those kinds of businesses. Venture is meant for companies that want to hyperscale. Um, so that's really what we're, what we're looking for. And we're fortunate. I mean, so far we've already had three different companies, you know, 20 X in, in a year, obviously. And again, these things take to develop. So it's been, it's been a fortunate start, but this is all, this is all paper money, right? So, <laughs> yeah. So I'm curious, like, let's talk about, um, you know, the nitty gritty around when you're evaluating a company, anyone watching, listening right now, um, do they have to be like, you You know, you see a billion dollar valuation, 100, 200, 300 mil ARR, like it's, it's got to be, yeah, like talk to us about that. Yeah. So I think everyone has their own style as an investor and there's no sort of right and wrong way about it. But typically things, things that I sort of look for is one, I try and stay in fields I kind of understand, right? Like I'm not like I occasionally will see decks for some company that has this new like biomedical drug that will change cancer research. And I'm like, I have no idea if that's like, I, I can't, I can't evaluate that. It may be good. It may be bad. Um, and for me, that lane typically is businesses that earn money, which is like, which I mean, eliminates a lot of companies, frankly, or businesses where the best the revenue model is pretty well known and businesses that are not either super consumer or super enterprise, but right in the middle. So a lot of that would include like creator economy, um, online education, fintech, uh, businesses that are the concept that I'm really excited by is like businesses that either enable other entrepreneurs or they enable other people to become entrepreneurs where you previously weren't right. Like I'm a huge believer that the most motivated people in the world are entrepreneurs and there's businesses that empower them in any way, shape or form, either building financial services for them or taking traditional industries and just converting people to like these micro business owners or building software for small business owners internationally. I love all of that stuff. So that's the theme we invest in heavily. So one is I figure out what are the themes I'm excited about and try and stay over there. Two depends on the stage of the company, but if the company has been around for a while, I look a lot at when the company was started, like whether investors admit it or not, they're always sort of judging you for what you have achieved relative to how long you have been around. So I will evaluate a company differently than around three months, six months, you know, one year, three years, five years, unless for whatever reason, a company has been around for three or four years, but something really changed to be a very strong inflection point. Um, but then really just in an ideal world, look at sort of what, what is the rate at which people are doing things? Because this game in a lot of ways is won by speed. So speed can, in some cases, mean like, wow, they're just shipping real product really fast. Like to me, that increases the chances of them finding product market fit if they're pre-product market fit. If they're post-product market fit, it's like, how fast are they scaling revenue? How fast do they even want to scale revenue, right? Like, like today, wanting to grow revenue 2x, doubling revenue year over year does not make you venture backable, frankly. You have to be sort of in the 3x year over year mark if you are hitting that hyperscale and you know really want to raise a strong round. So that's the speed is the other thing I value it for. The third and probably most important thing and also the hardest to judge and the one I probably will get wrong the most often is like the founders slash founders, right? Like, are is this the person? Are these the people that one, want to build something like, you know, venture backable, a massive company? And two, do I think they're capable of doing it? This is the hardest. And this one obviously is the hardest, but it also is the most important because when you're investing early stage, there's countless examples where you invest in one idea but the company evolves and then they do something else and it's equally good. Right. So yeah. So at the end of the day, we're in a, we're in a talent evaluation business as much as anything. Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying this episode and learning a ton. 
As you know, in this series, we interview some of the greatest founders of our generation to find out how they did it. However, if you're thinking of starting your own business and you want to hear from some incredible stories from everyday people like you or I who are actually in the trenches, only been building their business for maybe one year or two years, like that are building right now and they're really in the early stages, but they're getting success. You should come and check out our new podcast, From Zero to Founder, hosted by our community manager, Molly Flynn. These are in the trenches stories from our very own successful students that have gone through some of our programs. People just like you who are deep within the process of building their very own successful business. These are the founders of tomorrow. You can find the From Zero to Founder podcast on all platforms. And remember, it's founder without the E. All right, now let's jump in the show. And talk to me like kind of the people side, right? Like uh, you meet a lot of people, you, you're you pretty well connected. Um, you know, what, what kind of traits are you looking for? Is it someone that you can have beers with? Is it someone like- oh, that, would be, that would be an awful mistake, frankly, yeah. <laughs> I think I think that's, that's sort of the trap that you very early on, very early on you realize that like amazing founders, like there's no sort of like, physical attributes there's no sort of like cultural background there's none of that that like in fact i think something as an investor you have to pay special attention to do not fall into those traps um it's it's so again like for me i think the the founders i like best are this is a personal thing are people that are you know ultimately just have a very strong curiosity about everything about the entire world so um you know people that are frequently like questioning of things and have a natural interest and drive um in that regard so that's that's one that's one area um the second thing is again speed of execution like there are some people that you know i i really index for founders that are energetic that kind of you know move fast and and want to sort of want to sort of all be very i forget where i read this but someone that's like very patient in terms of like sort of long-term outcomes and results but very impatient about any like short-term tasks that can be completed, right? So it's like you're 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 thinking long, long term, but you're if you you know you're working with them, they're very, 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 very fast. Um, the third thing to look for is founder dynamics, um, because one of the biggest reasons companies fail early on is like the co-founders just blow up at each other. Like maybe one person is unhappy with how much they own and feel undervalued, or maybe, or maybe they one person is, or maybe they both have an equal amount, but both want to be CEO, or maybe they're just two people that just met and, you know, they don't really know each other and haven't worked very well. So that's what I'm trying to understand is like, are, are, is, are, is their relationship stable? Because if their relationship breaks, that sort of leads to everything breaking. Um, but beyond that, I mean, it's really an art, not a science, you know, I, it's not like going through a checklist where I'm like, cool, they're smart, they're, you know, whatever. I think it's something that you, you spend time with people, you feed off their energy. Um, it's also, it's also how, how I think they will ultimately choose us as investors. Cause as the best companies have options, I mean, my advice to companies when they're deciding who to pick is like, who do you want to work with? Right. Like who, cause you're really gonna, in a lot of ways, these are meaningful 10 plus year relationships. Like a bunch of my early investors in Teachable are now lifelong friends of mine. We've now known each other for you know eight years and will for the rest of our lives. So who are who are the people you sort of want in your in your circle in your orbit or whatever, and and kind of feed off feed off that energy and use that to ultimately decide. 
Mm. You talk about um, founder dynamics. I reckon that would take ages to really work out. So like how, in terms of evaluating dynamics or, or making a decision on a company to, to put some money behind, like how long does that take usually for you? So again, because of the nature of our fund, we're trying to move pretty fast. Um, the other thing that's sort of unique to me is I burn out with a ton of video calls, right? So a lot like so different investors have different strategies. Like some investors are like, if any company is credible, like let me meet them up front and you know spend a bunch of time. For me, I'm still probably slightly extroverted, but like I still like it still drains energy to have lots of first calls. Like that's just something I learned about myself. So as a result, what we're trying to do is screen out as much as possible prior to getting on a call. So very often that means long kind of email back and forths or like, frankly, a lot of this stuff happens on Twitter messages or WhatsApp or iMessage, but lots of like sort of back and forth, um, asynchronous communication, typically do at least one call, usually two, but we're trying to decide in under a week in most cases, but that's also part of our value proposition to founders where we're like, look, we're, we're founders, we work at your speed. Even if it's going to take us work, we're going to sort of front load it and move fast. And that's also where the market is going. Um, that does mean, you know, the only difference is when we're writing, you know, substantially larger checks, what's happening with the new fund, we're taking more of a lead role where we'll take a little bit longer, but otherwise we're trying to decide that and you're right. Co-founder dynamics are pretty hard. So what we do is just at the very least understand how long they know each other. If they've worked together on another project or company, that's a pretty good green light type symbol but also making clear, you know, who the CEO is. If there's ever two people who are like, Hey, we're both CEO. That's, that's sort of a red flag or something they need to fix pretty soon. Um, and just, just seeing, you know, how they, how they interact. Like typically you always have both or three or whoever the founders are on the call and sort of seeing if they have a good dynamic. And talk about other red flags that you look for, for like potential companies to invest in. Like what are, what are some of the things that you're like, looking for red flags? Yeah. So, I mean, these are all somewhat obvious red flags, yet it still sometimes happens is um, like very, very, very minor exaggeration by founders is fine, but that crosses a line and I get uncomfortable. So very often the sort of quickest things to do, um, let's say I get a deck or someone's like talking about, you know, hundred percent month over month growth, year over growth is also just add, like ask for the financials and see how often they line up. You'll be surprised, like at least 20, percent of the time, like the numbers are just they'd like what, what they put in the deck in terms of the percentage growth numbers is different. Look at it in Excel and actually do the math, which is, you know, something, something pretty, pretty easy to do. Um, other, other, other things that like, I personally find a harder time doing is, and this, this kind of makes it hard as a founder, right? But sometimes what happens is you raise, you raise around and then you realize that you don't have enough momentum to raise the next round at a premium markup series, what's called a bridge round, which is almost at the same terms as the last round, sometimes better terms than the last round. I've almost never done those, not because I don't think companies can be rescued. It's just really fighting. Momentum is so important in this game. And because we're not investors, for most of our investments, we're not taking the majority seat. We're not really controlling, turning that around. So we typically, as a result, don't do bridge rounds often. And again, there are exceptions. You know, we think the founder is exceptional if something has changed and so forth. But momentum is something as a company that it's hard. Like it takes a while to get it. But once you get it, you just got to hold on. You just got to do whatever you can to keep it going. And when that turns, it typically gets sort of very, very hard 
to do that. Um, other red flags. I don't like it when founders are dating each other. I think if they're married, it's fine. But I think if you have founders that are dating each other, it just, just, yeah, definitely, definitely sets itself up for, for, for not, not good outcomes. Um, other than that, no, I mean, I think a lot of times, like what I'm looking for is things that like are non-obvious in some ways, which means, which means if like things are a little bit off, it may be a better decision and off. I mean, like maybe one founder is, you know, like a little bit hyper aggressive or uh, like there's something like, like something I realized, for instance, is a really bad way of evaluating companies is asking for references from their former bosses. Cause a lot of, I did that for a while and a lot of founders had terrible references. So I passed on the companies, but you know what, sometimes being a terrible employee makes you a great founder. So that's actually not that useful a tool. Um, but yeah, I think you're looking Ideally, you make the most money in this industry when you have an opinion that other people don't agree on. So there's some companies that just look great, great founder, great traction or whatever. Sure, you can put a little bit of money in, but that's not where you're going to make your outsized returns. You're going to make your outsized returns in something that looks unsexy, that the other people don't want. So you have to find what it is that other people don't like about it. And if you are fine with that, that's a good opportunity. Like Coinbase, for instance, was almost unfundable after Y Combinator. They took a very, very long time to raise around while all of their competitors you know, raised around pretty easily. So you're looking, you're looking for things that are not like got a lot of hype around it or, so, or something or something like if something, if everything looks great, you probably still want to invest, but you're not going to make differentiated returns from other investors on that. Right. Because if that's the case, the price is probably pretty high. You're probably not going to be able to buy a large piece of it. Um, and again, let's say my end goal is to build a top decile fund. Right. So I need to be better than 90% of other people. And the way you do that and the way you make a lot of money is when you find something that other people don't like for whatever reason, because then you can buy a large piece at a low price. Um, and then, you know, when it becomes obvious to other people is sort of when you're like, you know, told you so, but obviously that, you know, that gets harder and, and so forth. And why it makes sense as an investor to think about what are areas, what is your edge? What are areas you're going to focus in where you're going to see these things sooner? It may just be, you come from that world, you know, that, that better, or maybe, one of your smartest friends in the world is starting a company. So you have that inside connection. Um, so all of those are viable sources of edge. Yeah, I see. Man, um, I could keep picking your brain and go on for this all day. Uh, conscious of time, a couple last questions and then we'll move to the hot seat round. So you're starting a new fund. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about it and why and, and how that came about? Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So the new fund is, it's a little bit of a larger fund. It'll be a $70 million fund, um, kind of feeding off the whole energy thing. You know, I spoke about earlier, um, it's called vibe capital. Um, because again, that, that's sort of the idea idea behind it is like, look, we're, 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 I'm a founder and I've never yet met a founder that didn't prefer raising money from other founders. So we want to be the friendliest sort of source of capital in your cap table. I mean, we think about what we bring is outside of being able to work at your speed as a founder it is we promise, promise to be the least painful investor you have to deal with. Um, and yeah, super excited about that. You know, we're one of the biggest investors in our own fund. We're raising, also have about 200 other investors signed up as part of this, uh, doing things a little bit uniquely where we're internally, what happens is most funds take 20% of the capital they raise just to pay themselves fees. Um, we're paying ourselves zero fees. We only make money if we return, you know, money, um, but that also means it gives us more capital to invest. Um, but yeah, we're super excited about it. We're investing, you know, early stage 
generalist funds. Uh, we're also doing stuff across the entire world. I mean, we think as much as 50% of our investments and you know, 30% of our dollars will be invested outside the US. Mm, yeah, we've talked about this offline. I think that's crazy. Um, so you're, you're really interested as well in like the uh, India market, European market too? Europe a little bit, but less so. I think it's really like India, Latin America, Brazil, Southeast Asia, Pakistan. Basically, there's a huge part of the world where people have come online only the last three years, like five, five, three, five years. You've had over a billion people get internet for the first time. And a lot of these markets, companies can grow ridiculously fast. You can go from like, you know, they're less competitive in the US. You can hit millions of people per day really fast. And I think these companies need to scale differently and venture, right? Which is inherently for companies that hyperscale is a better tool for this. So that's definitely something we're interested in. We also think we can be more helpful there because all of our investors in turn are strong US funds. So we can eventually connect these companies to those funds for later stage rounds. Um, And thirdly, we also think it's, you know, more attractive. I mean, it's less competitive. There's fewer founders investing in companies over there. So we think there's a little bit of alpha there as well. Yeah, love it. Um, I have to ask as well, what's like the wildest story? I know you love a good story. What's the wildest story you've had so far as a VC, founder turned VC? Uh, so, yeah. So there was one company that, um, so Y Combinator, a lot of people know about it. It's a very trendy, you know, in- incubator. Like there's a lot of hype when they have these demo days and everyone presents and um, typically a lot of investors love investing in Y Combinator companies. They're fighting to invest and the companies sometimes get a little bit, you know, carried away and all of that. Um, not two Y Combinator demo days ago, I saw this company. I'm not going to name them. I'm going to keep them anonymous where, um, I reached out and I was like, Hey, you know, I would love to learn a little bit more about investing. She replied saying, Hey, and this is going to be pre-revenue. Hey, you know, we're, we're actually really grateful for your interest. Thank you so much. Like without your interest, you know, we'd be nowhere. Um, we actually have a big wait list for investors, but if you're willing to like sign this document, I'll let you skip the wait list. And the document was straight up just a purchase agreement to buy shares at a hundred million dollar valuation. I don't know if anyone actually did that, but I'm like, this is, is this the top of the market where without a conversation, founders are just sending term sheets for a hundred million dollar price for like a brand new company. Um, I think eventually they did receive some blowback. I wonder what happened to them, but I remember just being like, oh man, what a, what a world we live in. Yeah, it's wild. Um, and then, can you are you able to share kind of like your best or hottest investment thus far? Look, I'm not allowed to share sort of like numbers behind it, but I'm happy to sort of happy to share you know a couple of companies that we're we're really proud of. Uh, one of them is obviously you know good friends of of both of ours. Uh, it's a company called Circle. They're a community platform. This is especially meaningful to me because it was started by three people that were teachable including sort of two of our early leaders, close friends. And there's no feeling quite as good as a founder to see people that like worked for you go on to do bigger and better things. Um, And yeah, we were the first money into them. And I'm super, super proud to sort of see how far along um, they have come. That's that's what's great about, you know, doing this kind of investing is just being able to see, see the journey that people are having and watching you literally watch people grow in front of your eyes, right? You like, you see people like build confidence when they go from like idea stage to a company that's, that's hot. And it's really, it's really cool and rewarding. Mm, that's awesome. Yeah. Look, so I actually, yeah, one of the guys, Andy, 
I met Andy through Clarity because he was like a webinar coach and I wanted to get better at webinars for founder. And then he was like, he was like so helpful. Um, I, yeah. I said, yeah, and I'd never been to America before. And I said, um, when I come to New York, I'll buy you a beer and we'll have to catch up. Like he was so helpful, um, just absolute legend. So, you know, I'm big fans of Circle. Yep. I still remember when I, before he met with you, he had parked outside and I see him coming out of the driveway, like watching a webinar. And I'm like, dude, stop doing that. But that was, that was your <laughs> stuff. So yeah, good, good, good kid. Good kid for sure. Yeah. Good time. So awesome. Well, look, we'll move to the hot seat round, man. I can't believe we've spoken for like almost 40 minutes. It doesn't even seem like yeah. that. And I've, I've got to let you go. So, um, Hot seat round, uh, just rapid fire questions. If you could get a time machine and invest in only one business in history, what would it be and why? Stripe. <laughs> Stripe, easy. Yeah, yeah. IPO is coming soon. Stripe, yeah, and again, I've known, I'm fortunate to have known, you know, Patrick and Noel for, for quite a while, but I think I think at this point, look, it's, it's a consensus sort of answer, but they've, they've really proven like they're both far along yet if you know seems pretty early in terms of all the directions that can go to you know power the financial infrastructure for the entire world yeah it's crazy like um out of all the tools that we pay for at founder stripe is yeah. the most expensive and we don't see it like, yep. like we actually yep. don't like it's, it's insane yep yeah then there's infrastructure there behind everything and what's what's powerful is now that they have moved into issuing bank accounts and issuing cards they theoretically have the opportunity to almost have a closed loop network where it, it would be conceivable at some day to pay for something with a Stripe powered card that goes to a Stripe powered bank account where the payment is processed by Stripe. And you know who who loses out there? Like Visa, Mastercard, and pretty much every single intermediary um, that's in the financial world. So very optimistic. Insane. Yeah. Big fan fintech. Okay. Uh, if you could have dinner with any entrepreneur, dead or alive, who would it be and why? Jay-Z, I just want to be friends with. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think, look, I think, I again, like, I think at this point I have reasonable access to the world of tech. I have no access to the world of hip-hop. So I, I feel like my top 10 answers would all, all come from that world. But I'm going to go with Jay-Z for now. If you could have any job, uh, like, what other than what you're doing now, uh, what would it be and why? This is super dorky, but, like, I went very deep into rabbit hole of appreciating long form sports journalism, but I find that so cool. So like, like, like Wright Thompson, Bill Simmons, like, you know, that, that level of like, you know, just, yeah, very, very niche topic, but it, it seems super dope. Yeah. Awesome. Well, look, um, yeah. Thanks so much for your time, man. If people want to find out more about you, your new fund, where can they go? Um, yeah. So I'm pretty active on Twitter. That's the best place to find me. The fund is at vibe.vc. Um, and yeah, those are the best places. Awesome. Well, uh, thank you so much for your time, man. And, uh, yeah, this is Cheers, really, really fascinating. Yeah, it's been a blast. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content, either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. 
So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.